Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place this morning. We ask that you come and circumcise our hearts. Come and let your word fall into our hearts and let it bear fruit for your glory. We worship you. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Lenny Konchewitz. I'm the resident church planter here at St. John's, um, leading the church plant over in St. John's County. Sorry, at St. John's at Grace Anglican Church. I'm the church planter, moving to St. John's this month, actually. And I'm excited to be sharing today about one of my personal New Testament heroes, John the Baptist. And the sermon series that we're in is called Advent, Season of Transformation. And for me personally, John the Baptist has been quite transformational early on in my Christian life. And I have a sermon prepared for you this morning based on the, on the preaching text that um, we have entitled, Joyful Decrease which may sound like a contradiction because nobody really likes to think of something joyful when, when they think of decreasing themselves or humbling themselves. I don't know what kind of picture comes to your mind, but maybe you think of humbling yourself as something where you put ashes on your, on your head and clothe yourself with sackcloth, as it says in the Old Testament, or you, you do things you don't really want to do, or something like that that, does, that that kind of goes against your ego or not, not a very pleasant experience. And yet this title of the sermon is A Joyful Decrease, A Joyful Humbling. And I want to share with you a few keys later that I believe are really, really good and helpful in understanding what it made a joyful experience for John the Baptist to humble himself and to decrease. Now, before we go into that, I want to give you a little bit of a context to who John the Baptist actually was, because I think it's important to know who he as a person was before we understand what he did and why he did what he did. We know from Scripture, and most of it we actually know from Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, is that Luke was born into a priestly family, to a man called Zechariah, and he was the priest, and to a, a woman called Elizabeth, who was actually a direct descendant of Aaron, the very first high priest, Moses' brother. So he had a very good lineage. Um, Elizabeth was already very old, and so was her husband, Zechariah. They were passed beyond their years, similar to Abraham and Sarah. And one day, Zechariah goes into the temple. It was his day to, to bring the sacrifice and to, to enter into the Holy of Holies. And as he steps into the Holy of Holies, an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Hey, I have good news. I have a son. And he reacted with mixed feelings about it because he couldn't really believe that that was true. So he said, hmm, I don't know, if you look at me, I'm quite old. I don't and the angel said, hey, I just came from God's very presence and I gave you this good news. How can you not believe me? You know what? You're not going to say another word until the day your son is born and you give him his name. And from that moment on, Zechariah could not speak anymore. He was mute. So he came out of the presence of the Lord, unable to speak. Now, that must have caused quite a stir. People. Anyway, nine months-ish pass, and there is a baby. And when it comes to naming the child, everybody has their own ideas of what he should be called. But then they ask Zechariah, and because he still cannot speak, he writes on a tablet the name that 
the baby should be called, which was the name the angel gave him, which is the name John. And the moment he writes down John on the tablet, his tongue loosens up and he can speak again. And it says there was a lot of amazement in Israel. And I can only imagine that it was so. People were expecting the Messiah to come. People were hoping for God to intervene and, and help them. And I can only imagine how exciting something like this must have been. An angel of the Lord appearing, announcing a birth, and so on. Now, I'm painting this picture for you because it is important to understand that John the Baptist was a very, very unique, very special person. It even says in Luke chapter 1 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. Now, that messes with my theology a little bit, or I don't know, if you like theology, you know, sometimes we like to think that things have to happen in a certain order before you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, apparently, in John's case, God liked to kind of break the rules a little bit, and he just baptized him with the Holy Spirit while he was still in the womb. He was a very spiritual, very special man. He, we don't know really much about where or how he grew up, probably in the desert somewhere. He lived very secluded from society and had this very deep relationship with the Lord until one day he appears walking out of the desert saying, I'm here to prepare the way for the Lord. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 45. Prepare the way for the Lord in the wilderness. I'm here. Every one of you, repent. Get rid of your idols. Turn your hearts back to the Lord. Come and be baptized. Which is why he was called John the Baptist. He baptized all the time. That was his main ministry, baptizing people one after the other. He did that for quite a while until suddenly Jesus himself appears and is baptized by John. And in the spirit, John identified Jesus and says, this is the one that I've been waiting for. He is the one that I've been preparing the way for. And he points to him and his disciples take note of that. And then we see after Jesus was baptized, we know from Scripture he went into the wilderness, he spent 40 days there to be tempted by Satan, then he came back out of the wilderness and his ministry started. And for a certain amount of time, not sure how long, maybe for a few months, Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist's ministry coexisted. We had the church of Jesus and the church of John the Baptist. And this is where the conversation that we read about today falls into, chronologically. We have this, this interesting situation where the, the disciples of John the Baptist come to him and say, Hey, John, this guy that you baptized on the other side of the river, he is now baptizing too, and everybody is, is, is going to him now. John! We have a problem. Your ministry is decreasing. Your church is falling apart. Everybody goes to the new guy. And John's response, which we will analyze a little bit, ends with this very strong, very popular line. He says, I must, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. When someone asks you to summarize today's sermon at some point later, it's really simple. It's John 3, verse uh, 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
That's the main thing of everything I want to say today. In fact, why don't you repeat that after me right now? Why don't you say, he must increase, but I must decrease. Amen. So be it. So let's look at this context a little bit here. John says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom stands and listens for him and is overjoyed to hear the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. I find it fascinating that this rough, kind of strange prophet from the desert, John the Baptist, comes and he starts talking about a bride and a bridegroom. It's kind of a funny picture for somebody like him to use as an analogy. And yet I believe it is a very significant one because I believe it's the Holy Spirit in him that gave him the vision that something is happening here that is more than just creator and creature, Lord and servant. No, there is something happening here where the Lord of creation is looking for a bride. It's looking for somebody to, to love from eternity. And in fact, when you read the book of Revelation, at the very end, the last stage of the church is described as a bride. The church will be like a bride, a beautiful, amazing, pretty bride waiting for Jesus to come back. I don't know what you see when you read the book of Revelation, which chapter you like to get hung up on, but I like to get hung up on that chapter. You know, skip over all that other speculating about Antichrist and all that. Go, go to, the, to the very end and say, this is what I'm going to focus on and this is what I'm going to be part investing in during my lifetime here on earth, making the church a beautiful bride ready for her husband. It is this vision that gave John the biggest joy. He says, this joy is complete in me because I'm the friend of the bridegroom. My job is to attend the bride to the bridegroom. My job is to make sure these guys meet and they love each other. My job is not to steal the bridegroom's attention. Now remember again, John was highly influential. He was a very big minister. He was very influential. He had friends well, not maybe friends, but we even know that King Herod actually liked listening to him in secret. Corrupt, wicked King Herod. He even respected John the Baptist. Now, I can imagine how some ministers would be tempted to exploit that. To say, hey, I'm going to leverage on my influence with King Herod, and I'm going to have him sponsor my ministry. I'll go and preach everywhere in Israel with guards by my side. I can start my own TV station here in Israel, become a TV preacher. John the Baptist, international ministries. In fact, he had international impact. We, we learn later in Acts chapter 19 when Paul goes on one of his mission trips to Ephesus, which was about 1,200 miles away, which is a long foot march, that he found a group of disciples of John the Baptist there. I mean, John the Baptist had a big impact. So he could have easily fallen into this idea of, hmm, I'm actually really... I don't know if I should decrease yet. Maybe God wants me to actually have this impactful ministry for a little bit longer. So when his disciples come to him and say, John, do something. We don't know what, what's going to happen because everybody leaves you and goes to Jesus. John Baptist's answer was not, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? His answer was, yes, that's exactly it. This is what I came to do. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, not to me. Can you imagine the friend of the bridegroom on, on wedding day running off with the bride? That's, that's material for a bad Netflix movie there, right? <laughs> no. His joy was to see Jesus increase. And far be it from us 
that the things God entrusts us to do, that we fall in love with these things and run away with the bride of Christ and use her for our own glory and our own advantage. And that's not just for us ministers who officially serve the church, but anybody really. What God has given you, may we not run away with it and use it for our own glory or our own advantage. So what were, what were some underlying keys that created this attitude in John the Baptist? I have two keys for you, and there might be more in this passage, but I want to give you two that are actually quite simple. They're not super deep, and yet they're quite profound if we hold on to them and apply them. The first thing is, I believe that John the Baptist had a strong foundation of thankfulness. Thankfulness for God's gifts of grace. Because the very first thing John said when the bad news came that everybody is leaving Jesus, the very first thing he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John the Baptist knew that everything he has and everything he was was simply a gift of grace from God. It was all by grace. It was all a gift. If we lose sight of that, if we lose sight that everything we have and everything we are comes as a gift of grace from God, if we lose sight of that, we give in to an entitlement spirit and we think we deserve things. And people who feel entitled, people who think they deserve something, struggle with being grateful and thankful. And because of that, they struggle with having a joyful decrease experience because decreasing becomes a personal issue and it's not joyful anymore. It attacks the ego. Thankfulness increases in our mind who God is and what he does and it decreases our own ego. So I want to challenge all of us after this very challenging year, after this crazy year of 2020, I want to challenge us to be a people of faith and to look back, maybe take 20, 30 minutes at home later tonight, look back and write down everything you're grateful for, everything God has done this year, everything that you still can give glory and thanks to God for. As we, as we finish up this year, let us, let us end it with a grateful and thankful heart. The second key I see here is that John the Baptist, he, he simply loved Jesus more than himself. Again, it's almost too simple maybe as a key, but I, I really believe it is the key to Christian life. If you, want to, if you want to summarize what the Christian faith is all about, then I really believe it is that you love Jesus more than anything else. You even bear his name, Christian. It's like his family name. Jesus is his first name, Christ his last name. It's not really, but it kind of is, you know. And we're called after his name. We want him more. We want to be identified with him more than with anything else. This is what gave John the greatest joy. And his humility, his humbling himself, really only was a byproduct of that love for Jesus. True humility, healthy humility, joyful humility is always a byproduct of something bigger. And in this case, the something bigger is the love for Jesus. Remember, a few weeks ago, I preached, I 
had my mirror here, and I said, worship is like reflecting God into our environment. We can see who we worship the way we treat others. I believe John the Baptist joyfully decreased because he worshiped the one true king who himself came and joyfully decreased on earth. So I want to call all of us, including myself, to repent. Just like John the Baptist came and preached repentance, I want to preach repentance this morning. Let us repent of anything or anybody that we chose to love more than Jesus in our own lives. Let us repent of the things that have stolen his number one place in our hearts. I want to point out a small but significant detail too. When John the Baptist says, he must increase but I must decrease, the, the order is important. He did not say, I must decrease and he must increase. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. Now, does that really matter? I want to suppose and I want to suggest, yes, it does. Why does it matter? Because if we start with, I must decrease, then we will have an endless job to do and we will never have time to increase Jesus. The more you look in yourself, the more faults and mistakes and weaknesses you find, and you will forever be busy and stuck in that hole of introspection. And before you know it, you might become spiritually depressed. Been there, done that. Don't go there. I believe our focus must be on increasing him, and us decreasing will be a byproduct of that. I want to put it this way. I do believe that we, we need to root our identity and our value and our entire life in Jesus and not in trying to humble ourselves all the time. Yes, there are things where we can and should proactively humble ourselves, but our identity is not rooted in that. Our identity is rooted in Jesus Christ, who himself came, emptied himself, humbled himself, became one of us, united himself to us, took us with himself into the grave and out of the grave in the resurrection and ascended into heaven and took us all with him spiritually, mystically. The New Testament letters are full of that. Something mystically, spiritually happened to all of us who are part of Christ when he came and died and rose again and ascended back into heaven. Scripture says we're seated with Christ in heavenly places right now. This is where our identity comes from. This is where we are really rooted in. And this is all a gift of grace. We cannot humble ourselves enough to, to earn this. We cannot earn our way into heaven. We cannot earn our way onto the throne of God. That's ridiculous. It's all a gift of grace. It's an important foundation that we look at him first and increase what he has done. Otherwise, we will be tempted to boast in our humility. We'll read in the Bible, Jesus fasted 40 days, and we'll say, hey, I'll fast 41 days, just to be really humble. <laughs> you know, it really is a deceitful thing. I'm not saying don't humble yourself again. I just want to say that true humility is a healthy byproduct of true love for Jesus. Otherwise, we will be in danger of getting puffed up in our self-humbling efforts. I want to finish with a, a quote by one of my favorite Bible commentators. He was a Church of England preacher and theologian in the 19th century. His name was Charles Ellicott. He said, Humility is a grace which cannot live except by resting on some more positive quality, such as faith or love. 
whenever it is consciously cultivated and delighted in, it loses all its grace. It becomes either unreal, the pride that apes humility, or it turns to abject slavishness and meanness. Of such deprivations, church history is unhappily full. I'm just finishing a class on church history in my um, seminary, and he is so right. People have tried to cut themselves into pieces almost because they think it pleases God to humble, humble themselves like that. But that is not the point. The point is that we love Jesus more than our own lives. So again, I want to challenge you. Finish this year with a thankful and grateful heart. Look back at 2020 and thank God for everything you can give him thanks for. And secondly, repent of everything that has become more important than Jesus in your life. This is Advent season. It's waiting for Jesus, not waiting for the presence primarily. It's waiting for Jesus. He is the main focus. And I believe if we implement that in our lives, I believe that true humility, John the Baptist-like humility, joyful decrease will be a healthy byproduct of that. And let me just add this too. I really believe dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. I believe the next year is, is going to be such a significant year for the church, for the body of Christ. The way we act, the way we relate to one another, the way we demonstrate and show humility can maybe help and sa save this nation and many people, peoples of the world. We cannot allow division and divisiveness and suspicion and viciousness to get in here, into our hearts, to puff us up, to pull things apart. Let us joyfully decrease, turning our eyes to Christ, partnering with him, bearing one another's burdens, and trusting that he will lead us forward. But I do believe that humility will be a key, key characteristic for us in the next year. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask you for help to get rid of anything that puffs us up so that we can reflect you, Jesus, to this broken and dying world that is just marked by, by despair and hopelessness and pain and division at the moment. Come and knit us together and let us be like John the Baptist who joyfully decreased and made you big and made you great. We worship you, Jesus. Come and help us. Amen.